Hello, listeners. Welcome to another insightful episode. I'm your host, Grace Hopper, for Raza, Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. As awareness of mental health illnesses have grown, professionals who are in the frontline position are increasingly looking for ways to help those suffering from a wide variety of associated issues. The COVID-19 pandemic, coupled with the associated lockdowns, travel restrictions and the lack of opportunities to interact with others has resulted in an increase in people suffering from mental health issues. Although these have been increasing in the population at large since the government's austerity measures were introduced, over a decade ago. Over the past few years, community pharmacists and mental health first aiders have become an established and much appreciated occupation within local communities throughout the country. Even before the pandemic, the role of community pharmacies had become an important supplementary addition to the health service. However, what defines a community-based pharmacy is much broader than just being situated in the traditional retail setting, as they often include a variety of services that can also be found within the regular health service. Community pharmacies are now a common fixture in many high streets and large supermarkets due to their convenient location being both approachable and accessible to the public when out shopping. All community pharmacies have qualified healthcare professionals providing a variety of services. They have also been mandated to do safeguarding training in order to be on the lookout for vulnerable children and adults who may be suffering from mental health problems. A mental health first aider is trained to spot the early signs of mental ill health issues in patients using the pharmacy. They are able to identify someone requiring appropriate support, both internal and external, for those who may be suffering from mental health issues such as psychosis, depression, anxiety, or have suicidal thoughts. Dr. Omar Peters is a community pharmacist and is a mental health first aider who specializes in treating victims of abuse and trauma who suffer from both physical and emotional pain due to a wide variety of negative experiences, ranging from involvement in war to domestic abuse. Welcome, Dr. Omar Peters. Thank you. Can you kindly tell us a bit about yourself and some of the things you've done so far and why you went, why you went into pharmacy? Talking about why I came into pharmacy, I think I, I, would, I would say it's been a long journey and um, it's also as a result of my um, desire to help people in terms of medical um, profession and in terms of healthcare. Um, I've always had this burning desire since I was a kid. I actually wanted to be something like a nurse because it was the sight of a nurse that inspired me, you know, with the white, beautiful dress. And um, she came to where I lived then as um, an immunization officer. At that time, I didn't realize she was called an immunization officer, but I just liked the immaculate um, white dress she wore. And um, I told myself, oh, one day I'm going to be like this lady and I'm going to be helping people. And that was where, you know, my interest in, 
um, medical and um, healthcare profession uh, actually uh, got sparked and I pursued it. And here I am. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So you got inspired by someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, our episode today is detailing uh, or centers around pharmacists treating abuse victims and survivors. Yeah. Do you automatically prescribe medication to an abused survivor? Or does it depend on the type of abuse they've suffered and the symptoms displayed afterwards? For example... PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, memory loss, anxiety? That's a very good question. Um, it does depend on the kind of abuse, really, because um, when a patient comes to us at the counter, I, I am talking from the standpoint of a community pharmacist, because obviously there are different types of pharmacists. Um, there's the hospital pharmacist, there's the community pharmacist, there's the industrial pharmacist, there's the academic pharmacist. I happen to be a community pharmacist and um, a community pharmacist is actually, you know, the first point of call within the community. So people who have maybe eczema, people who have headache, they come to us first. So there's every chance for the pharmacists to see these people even before they get to see their GPs and they get to see the consultants in the hospitals. And uh, because we are so well situated within um, every community, we are also very approachable. We are very accessible. Uh, you don't need to book appointments to see us. So there's every tendency for abuse victims to see us first and for us to see them first. Usually when they're coming to the pharmacy, what we notice is the bruises you'd notice um, you know, the physical aspect of the abuse. Now, we as community pharmacists would first of all have our concerns in terms of making them feel better with their physical health. So if they are in pains, we would first of all prescribe or go ahead to give them painkillers. If they come to us and they say anything different or we go further to investigate, then we can take it further. But I would say the first thing we do, depending on the physical symptoms they suffer, especially in terms of bruises and uh, bumps and things like that, yes, we would give painkillers and other things that could help, dressings that could help, and uh, yeah, things like that. So yeah, that's what the community pharmacists would do. So do you find that some patients want medication and conversely, others refuse any form of um, prescription for them, citing side effects or the possibility of becoming addicted? Yeah, it depends on um, what the community pharmacist might have offered. I must say at this point that... um, the general community pharmacist isn't a prescriber. Okay. But a community pharmacist can go ahead to do certain courses and become a specialist and then become a pharmacist independent prescriber. So a pharmacist independent prescriber can then prescribe. Although the normal community pharmacist who hasn't gone ahead to do uh, any of the specialist courses can, I would say, prescribe, but not on paper. So I can 
say to you, um, yeah, if you have, let's say, headache, you can take paracetamol. That is a kind of prescription, but it's not written. So a community pharmacist can give, you know, that kind of immediate care when uh, an abuse victim comes in. Um, but there are some patients who are well-versed in, you know, the different kinds of medications. Some are highly addictive and they'll tell you, oh, no, I don't want that. That's too strong for me. And mm -hmm. um, others will say, well, anything at the moment, just anything, honestly, just anything, I'm happy to go with it because it depends on how badly they are feeling. Some just want anything to numb the pain. And this numbing of pain could be physical pain, emotional pain, and anything at all. Some would ask for even more things that you are willing to give. Some would say, give me uh, this painkiller and that painkiller and this painkiller. And uh, when you tell them, oh, sorry, uh, that's a bit too much. Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand what kind of pain I'm in. So while some would decline, others would ask for more. Yeah, okay. that's what we, no we notice. Yeah. So what are your views on homeopathic remedies and other alternative medicines to treat victims of domestic abuse then? Right. Homeopathy is um, a specialized kind of um, medical practice, which I would say is outside the jurisdiction of pharmacy practice. Um, it's, not, it's not one of the areas of our specialist um, practice. So a pharmacist who is delving into homeopathy should in one way or the other have a level of training that is outside of pharmacy practice, which then includes homeopathy. Personally speaking, I believe that um, homeopathy is a kind of, um, I, I would say at this time, in this, um, at this level of civilization, where we are now, homeopathy is still a bit controversial. While some believe that homeopathy is, um, you know, the way out, especially in dealing with psychological issues, um, others believe that homeopathy is irrelevant. And um, the people who believe, there's a school of thought uh, that believes that homeopathy has little or nothing to do with the physical pain that people suffer with. So a victim's abuse may have a cracked rib or mm. cigarette burns. How is homeopathy going to treat that? So there's this school of thought that believes that um, the medical practice, the conventional medical practice is still very relevant when it comes to victims of abuse. But there's another school of thought that believes that homeopathy is all it takes to sort of help the abuse victim come out of the psychological trauma. But where I stand is this, both of them are important. So the medical, the conventional orthodox medical aspect of treatment is important. While if the victim chooses the aspect of homeopathy, I believe a lot of people have had positive results from homeopathy and there's really no harm in going for it. Most of the um, either homeopathic counselors or the homeopathic practitioners, they are usually highly trained. Some of them are actually medical doctors that have gone ahead to sort of um, specialize in the area of homeopathy. So I believe that they know what they are doing. So whichever way um, 
you choose to go, I believe there's nothing to lose. If an abuse victim decides to try out homeopathy, there's been very good reviews about homeopathy. People have sort of come back to themselves and regained their confidence, regained you know, their mental capacity due to them being, um, uh, being going through homeopathy. So I think it's, it, I am not against it and I believe there's nothing to lose. Yeah. Okay. okay. So that leads me to my next question. Do you encourage survivors to seek therapy before you consider prescribing or giving out medication? Like I said, it still depends on the kind of abuse. I mean, if someone comes to me with swollen eyes and um, maybe bruises all over the body, a broken arm, a broken finger, and as a community pharmacist, I stand there and I'm saying, well, you need to see, um, uh, let's say, the homeopathic counselor, and you need to see that, and uh, you need to... I, I, I don't think I'll be doing the person justice, and I would also be failing in my duty as a community pharmacist there. So it depends on what I can see physically. If the person has a need for that medical attention, I will first of all encourage the person to attend to the physical need first. Okay. And then if the person is happy with the option, or with any other option, but usually what community pharmacists do is to signpost. Okay. So it's not really in our position to take it any further um, in terms of the treatment. We can take it further if um, the person wants us to sort of offer any kind of help. But when it comes to medical treatment, we have to refer to the GP to continue from wherever we stop. Because what we can do is very, very basic. We can just give, the immediate painkiller, but if the person is presenting with something that looks like a cracked rib, a broken arm or something, the person would need x-ray, the person would need all of that to be assessed, and we cannot do that within the pharmacy. So yeah, um, we treat what we can see immediately, and then we sign posts to the appropriate quarters. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. So I assume that any physical injuries to the victim caused by being subjected to physical abuse have been urgently treated yeah. in A and E. How long does a woman or a man usually wait before they receive help from a pharmacist for mental health issues, psychological issues, so to, so to speak? This is another very interesting question. And um, it's one of those questions that... Um, you can't put a time to it. You can't say five days, you can't say five months, you can't say, um, it also depends on the individuals. But what um, is, is evident is that there are groups of people that take longer to seek help than others. Now, there are, there are people who are more vocal about the abuse they suffer, and there are others who are very, uh, very secretive about the abuse they suffer. Um, one very important finding is that people of the Black, Asian, and minority ethnic population are usually the slowest in seeking help for abuse and uh, for mental health issues generally. 
especially following abuse. And a lot of um, reasons have been given for this. One of them being cultural reasons, another one being religious re reasons. And um, it's not only a form of a tripartite kind of trust, I would say. So okay. there's the family at the top. So it's like a triangle. There's a family, yeah. there's the family at the top, there's religion to the right, and then there's the medical to the left. And the individual is in the middle. Now, the individual trusts people within the family, the individual trusts the religious setting, the individual also trusts the medical setting. But in a way, it's lopsided because most of the people of the BIM community, they lean more to the advice they get from family and from the religious setting. So where the three come into play, individuals of the BIM community would not, first of all, pick the advice of the medical setting. They will first of all consider advice from family, then advice from the religious setting before settling for advice with the medical setting. So you find that a woman from the BIM community is being abused. She, the first people she will speak to, if at all, would be her immediate family. And what we have seen happen is most members of the immediate family would either tell her, look, don't worry, uh, it's because of this you haven't done, and it's because of that you haven't done. So if you do it this way and do it that way, he might change. Most times the family would tend to give advice and make the woman sort of believe that it's her fault. Um, Religious setting as well, most times gives advice. Oh, you see, if you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that. So at the end of the day, the family setting, the religious setting makes it impossible for the woman to speak out. It's when the medical setting comes in that the woman is then able to speak out. At this time, we are talking about months or years of abuse. So back to your question, how long does it take before the victim of abuse comes out to speak or yes. to seek medical help? Yes. There are factors that need to be taken into consideration if you are going to answer this question. And there are different groups of people that will take different length of time before seeking this help. And like I said, it all depends on the factors that surround this woman, family, religion, before the medical. Thank you. That was a brilliant um, answer. So um, what specialized knowledge and training is required of a pharmacist when dealing with victims or survivors of abuse? So all community pharmacists have been... Um, mandated to do what we call the safeguarding um, training. Okay. So there's safeguarding level one, there's safeguarding level two. And uh, as far as I know, community pharmacists are expected to have this safeguarding training. Uh, aside other minor trainings that come with them, um, you know, the safe spaces and all of that. So uh, I believe that Every community pharmacist in the UK should have a level of knowledge uh, based on this mandatory training that I think it came into play about um, 
three or four years ago that um, you know everyone should have this safeguarding training and it's a way of looking out for everyone children vulnerable adults and you know people in this kind of circumstances so what are your views on safe spaces and code word schemes in pharmacies for women who are in danger from their abusers i believe it's a very very good initiative and uh, since its inception over a year ago, a lot has come up in terms of the positive reviews and in terms of um, the help, these safe spaces and the um, action needed immediately. Um, I mean, it's, it's come up to be one very uh, profitable initiative within the community. And um, I mean, a lot of community pharmacists have become safe spaces already. Um, okay. I mean, a lot of booth pharmacies and some independent pharmacies. And quite recently, because um, when it first started, it was only commissioned in booth pharmacies. But quite recently, supermarket pharmacies are beginning to join as well. Tesco is one of them. Morrison's is one of them. Usually when we say um, abuse, we talk about women. now. So I'm just using women as the abused. So sometimes okay. the abuser comes maybe to the pharmacy with the woman. And um, if you're not careful, you would miss it as a pharmacist uh, because you find out that they are the ones asking for the prescriptions. Can I have paracetamol, please? Can I have, who is it for? It's for my wife, it's for my partner. And, uh, but because they, they, they want to sort of protect themselves and make sure the woman doesn't say much, mm-hmm. but then, the woman can go to the supermarket to go out to buy any, maybe milk, bread or something. So Morrison's Tesco joining in this um, scheme makes it even a better way for the, uh, the abuse victim to open up. Because as far as the abuser at home is concerned, she's only going to buy milk. So she might just pop into the pharmacy there and say one or two things to the pharmacist and there she can find a, a safe space. So I am um, very much in support of the safe space and I think it's a, it's a very, very good scheme. Also some, um, let's say some off licenses are becoming safe spaces as well, which even makes it a lot easier. But um, I think we will also need to take it a bit further where we make some of the, you know, the African and um, Caribbean shops to become safe spaces as well. Because um, someone of the uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic um, population may not see a white man pharmacist as someone she can speak to when she's been abused. But if she goes to the African shop to go and buy her African food, the older lady, the elderly lady who might be there might be seen as someone who is understanding by this young girl who is being abused. And the young black girl may want to speak to this older African lady who is selling within the African shop in confidence. So there is, there is that part that um, if, if it's inculcated into the scheme would sort of open it up more because the black Asian and minority ethnic women are 
the ones that find it most difficult to speak about abuse. If you put everybody together, uh, there are so many factors that if a black woman comes out to speak about abuse, she fears a kind of antagonism from the man's family, a kind of antagonism from her own family. So she's afraid she might lose everything. So it's not about, for her, it's not just about calling the police. You call the police, she gets taken into custody, but then she has nobody afterwards. Hmm. Her mother, her father, her siblings, she then becomes the black sheep within the family. Yeah. By the time she considers all the repercussions, she would keep quiet and remain in it. So a lot has been done, but just a, a step further of making the, a few African Caribbean um, stores safe spaces as well would go a long way to help the BIM community. In that vein, can I ask this question? So yeah. why do some pharmacists have reservations regarding the scheme? That is the safe spaces scheme. Right. So the community pharmacy is, um, I would say, at the moment, inundated with work. Okay. Now we are looking at one pharmacist within a pharmacy premise. And being a pharmacist myself, in a day, I am there, I will do the new medicine service, I will have to attend to the prescriptions that are coming in. I have the care homes to look after. I have the individuals that come for minor ailments. I have the individuals that come for different things. And I am in and out of the pharmacy, in and out of the pharmacy. Now, while the pharmacy is a good place, all that the community pharmacist would ask for is probably more staff. Okay. So more, more trained staff. So the reservation is not about the community pharmacy not being suitable. No, community pharmacists have come across, including myself, we all are happy to be, you know, this safe space for women, for abuse and all of that. But it's easy to miss this little signs if you are inundated with work and you don't have enough staff. Now, the reason the height of um, reservation came, especially during COVID, where yeah. one member of staff falls ill, about three, four other members of staff who should have been there to support, then have to go um, into isolation because one person caught COVID. And then that leaves the pharmacy with very few hands. And we are looking at a pharmacy that still needs to attend to the same number of patients, especially at that time that the GPs were not operating in full capacity. So we had more people coming into the community pharmacy. So at that time, it was, it was, it, it was a lot more difficult for us to attend to everybody. And there were, there were chances that we could miss you know, some of these subtle signs. So it's all about, you know, the individual uh, issues within the community pharmacy, especially in terms of staffing and in terms of, um, you know, the workloads. So basically that's it. Mandatory training is yes. recommended on safer injection techniques. 
suicide awareness, domestic abuse or violence, child protection, what must be a coordinated approach to psychological first aid training and mental health first aid for pharmacists? Yes. And that's another very good question because I believe that within every community pharmacy, there should be a mental health first aider. So there should be one person, it's just like having a normal physical health first aider. So when you work in um, a company, there's normally, you know, the first aid box and there's somebody trained to give first aid, you know, the CPR and things like that. Yeah. There's yeah. always somebody trained to give first aid and there's always the first aid kit. Mental health is yet to have that level of recognition where within every every uh, company, no matter how little, the, the uh, no matter how few the number of staff um, are, there should be a mental health champion and there should be a mental health first aider. So the mental health first aider should be there to sort of look after and look out for signs of mental health issues among the staff. So it could be, I, I personally, I mean, for every 10 staff, there should be a mental health first aider for every 10 staff. That, that would be my statistics. Um, so if you have, let's say, uh, a workforce of about 40, then you should have a minimum of four mental health first aiders within the company. Because it's so important, there are people who are suffering from mental health issues and they find it difficult to speak to uh, you know, the manager. I have been to you know, one or two companies where all I see is um, you know, some leaflets in the canteen and uh, talk to the manager if you, if you have mental health issues, uh, you know, just different leaflets displayed everywhere. And I just believe that that is a tick box. It's just a tick box to say, yes, the company is looking after the mental health of their staff. A company that looks after the mental health of their staff would actually engage in mental health first aid training and they would actually pass on their staff to go and get trained. Now, if I have a colleague and that colleague is, um, in, we go out for a fag together during break, uh, we have tea, we stay in the canteen together, that colleague would be in a better position to speak to me as a fellow colleague than he or she would speak to our manager because our manager is our manager. But in a, you know, typical conversation during break, a colleague yeah. can just chip in and say, um, you see, I don't, I don't feel all right. Honestly, I, I think I'm just going to end it all. If I hear that straight away as a mental health first aider, I think I'm going to end it all. It should ring a bell straight away. I exactly. should know what to do straight away. As a yes. mental health first aider, I should know what to say. I should know where to signpost. I should know that what this person has said is not a joke. Some people, you ask them, how are you? Well, I'm still alive, but I don't know how long for. You might think it's a joke. But a mental health first aider knows straight away that that is not a joke. There are people who have gone ahead to commit suicide and it's after it's happened that the colleagues, the other staff members, oh, my head said this the other day. Oh, mm. oh, I wish I did this about it. But 
with that mental health for state training, all of these are covered. What are the yes. signs? What are the symptoms of um, suicide or suicidal thoughts? And all of these are covered. So at least one in every 10 member of staff should be trained as a mental health procedure within a workplace. That's my take on it. And within the pharmacy as well, the pharmacist herself should be, herself or himself should be a mental health procedure where we can spot you know, mental health issues among our patients and our staff. So that's my Thank take you. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that is quite uh, brilliant. That is, I mean, You've exhausted the question. You've you've actually answered it the way you know people can relate to, you know. Uh, the like you said, the first part of call will be to speak to your colleague because you're you're quite close. You're conversant with with each other because you work very closely with them. The next question is safeguarding code. What happens to someone who has gone through trauma? Does it change their personality, and how can healing take place? especially in relation to mental health? Trauma comes in different forms. And um, it's a wide spectrum when it comes to mental health in relation to trauma. And um, there, there are different types of trauma and they'll come with different types of mental health or psychological issues. So the wide spectrum could range from a military man who has come from the war zone and he has seen it all, you know, people actually dropping dead before him, uh, or someone who's been, you know, in any form of um, situation where people actually died instantly. And then it also goes to where there's a loss of a loved one through, through sickness or any form of disease or anything like that. And then also to relationship loss where people, maybe you loved someone so much, and all of a sudden, the, the person disappointed you, it's a kind of trauma as well. And the relationship has to break down. And also people living home, young children living home to go and start life, you know, afresh or on their own. All of these could be termed as trauma. While some are, you know, um, very, I would say very serious, others are not so serious. But what is serious depends on the person. So while relationship breakdown may not be serious to some other person, it might be so serious to me because there are some women who build their lives around a particular man. Yeah. And that man disappointing them and living their lives, probably to go and meet another woman could be the highest form of loss they've ever experienced in their lives. And that kind of trauma is also as bad as them losing someone physically. All forms of trauma may come with different levels of psychological issues and psychological disorders. And because the types of psychological issues that come with this type, these types of trauma, they are different. It could range from, you know, loss of self-esteem, especially for someone who's lost a relationship um, or um, loss of confidence, something as simple as that to suicidal depression. depression. And then to suicidal um, thoughts, okay, everyone is gone. People I like, they are no, no longer with me. What's the point? So there are different levels. Some could also trigger certain uh, latent mental health issues. So they had these mental health issues, but it was lying dormant. 
So it might be that they, they had bipolar, but it was dormant, or they had any form of um, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. It was mm. all lying dormant. It was there before, but it was lying dormant. So mm. this kind of post-traumatic stress disorder could sort of trigger some of these things, and then it can bring it to limelight. I have a friend, a very close friend, and her issue was, okay, so she was brought from Africa. She, she married um, someone here. And obviously she built her life around this gentleman. The gentleman was the only person she knew in this country. And mm. um, when I say this country, I'm speaking from the United Kingdom. And she was yes. brought from Africa. And uh, she built her life around this gentleman. And all of a sudden, this relationship broke down. And um, physically, I mean, this is, I was there. I, I assisted in getting her to the hospital. And um, it was, it was, it started with a bit of um, depression, but it then got to a, a point where she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And when the, the crisis was really bad, I had to call an ambulance. The ambulance came and she was so violent, they had to use handcuffs on her. It took about two, three men to actually pin her down. I mean, that was the height of that kind of uh, reaction to, to stress. Uh, as we speak, she's still recovering and everything. So for her, it has changed her personality. It has changed her life. And whatever you say to her, she will refer to where she was with this gentleman, where she was with this, this gentleman. It's going to take a while to recover. At this point, um, when it's this kind of emergency, we always recommend, obviously from the doctors, not from the pharmacists, that the person is on constant medication. So when the medication kicks in and the person has now attained a stable um, kind of personality, alongside that medication, this is from a pharmacist's point of view, we would never advise that um, someone stops a medication for mental health abruptly. If you're stopping a medication for mental health issues, you it must be in consultation with your doctors because most of these medications that um, sort of bring up what we call dependence. So you become dependent on this medication. Withdrawing it abruptly could trigger a kind of episode. So most times the doctor would have to reduce it, you know, gradually until you come off it. How long it takes to come off it depends also on the individuals. Now, back to your question. Does it change the personality of the individual? People react to, to the same things differently. While some people may you know, go into depression and within a month, they snap out of it and they say, oh, was I just you know, um, killing myself for that man? Oh no, he's not worth it. And life goes on. Why? Because of their personality, their original personality. Some people are, you know, highly extroverted. They make friends quite easily. But some people, they are so introverted and um, it takes them time to make friends. So it takes them time to come out of, you know, certain situations. Um, whichever um, kind of person the person is, a psychologist is always in a good position because we have clinical psychologists as well. That is outside the jurisdiction of the community pharmacists to handle. And that's why within the community pharmacy, we have different phone numbers. 
Normally, every community pharmacy will have a folder. And inside this folder, there are numbers, phone numbers of national helplines, local helplines, hospitals, and all, all the numbers and all the addresses and all the email addresses that you can think about that a person can be referred to. So we give the person choices. But whether or not it changes the personality of this individual, it depends on you know, the long-term effect and it depends on the person's personality. So there are some people that, like I said, they just snap out of it. Others, they never come out of it. So it all depends on the kind of trauma, the kind of help they receive, and then their kind of personality. That leads me to another question. Thank you for this um, brilliant uh, answer. Thank you. It's been said some young teenagers come into the pharmacy for morning after pills in relation to probably sexual abuse. Kindly shed more light on this. Right, so there are a few laws um, in the United Kingdom that um, governs the production, the provision of the service we call emergency hormonal contraception, EHC. Um, it depends on the age of the child. Uh, a child between 13 and 16, number one, you cannot deny the child um, this emergency hormonal contraception. Number two, it talks, the provision of this service to a child between 13 and 16 would also have to depend on the child's capacity to um, consent. So that's to consent, not to the sexual abuse, but to consent to receiving the treatment. That's what we call the Fraser's Guideline. So all community pharmacists are expected to be familiar with the Fraser's Guideline, how to approach a 13 to 16 year old who has come to um, request the emergency hormonal contraception, also known as um, the morning after pill. Depending on this child's capacity, sometimes if you notice the child is vulnerable, the child's mental capacity is low and uh, you just look at the child as, okay, this child could never have consented to whatever happened to her and uh, she's been exploited. Uh, it's within our rights to raise concerns. Within the pharmacy, we have the phone numbers to call for the safeguarding lead within your town. So there's always a safeguarding lead. There's always um, the, the right numbers to call. And within the pharmacy, there's always the um, planogram. So you notice this, this is what you do first, and then you do this first, and then you call this person, and then you call that, and then, so all community pharmacists are familiar with this planogram, what to do and what steps to take. Now, if the child is below 13, that's a different ball game altogether. At that point, the child, if, if there's every um, reason to notify the authority. But if the child is between 13 and 16, and you notice that this is actually as a result of an abuse, after you have given the EHC, that's the emergency hormonal contraception, you must also notify the right um, uh, body authority. authority within either the local authority, the, whichever one your planogram suggests. So there must be, but it doesn't always mean that 100% of the time, 
a 13 to 16 year old who comes for emergency hormonal contraception should be reported. It doesn't always mean. It all depends on what the Fraser's guideline is. It depends on what the local authority within your, your um, environment, what they allow and you know, the standard operating procedure within your company as well. So okay. it doesn't always mean that you should notify the parent because some 13 to 16 year olds will say, I don't want my mother to know, I don't want my father to know that I'm getting this EHC. And um, it's only when you are sure, when they come to you and they say, look, this man did this and I'm not happy about it. Now, this kind of abuse could, most times it is within the family. Most times it is abuse. These girls are abused by members of the family or people known to them, people in a position of trust. And this is where the community pharmacists become, um, you know, more like I would say the investigator. So the first thing we do, we take the child into a private space called the consultation room. And then we speak to the child, first of all, letting the child know that all that the child was going to say, oh, yeah, it was going to be confidential, all our, uh, discussion was going to be confidential, but you must also make them aware that if they disclose anything that makes their safety to be a concern to the community pharmacist, the community pharmacist reserves the right to report the situation without the child's consent and without the parent's consent. So that must be made clear. But every, um, every, kind of abuse, be it someone within the family or someone outside the family, uh, any level of concern at all must go through the safeguarding process that the, the, the company has set up. So long as it's a, a kind of abuse is suspected, but there are some, like I said, there are some 13 to 16 year olds who they'll tell you it wasn't an abuse, they consented to it, he's their boyfriend, and they're happy with it. And at that stage, I mean, you can't refuse the emergency hormonal contraception. But it, sometimes if they're telling you, oh, don't worry, uh, but there are other things we, we, we look at. For example, how old is this man? Um, so they've come for emergency hormonal contraception, Okay, so there are certain questions we are going to ask. How old are you? When did it happen? How long has this been for? And things like that. Now, we have all of that. If at any point he says, oh, the man is about um, 15 years older than me, it, I mean, you begin to think again and then you begin to probe. So usually within the pharmacy, there are a set of questions that you have and then, but you're not going to ask the questions like you're inter interrogating the child. You ask it, you know, open-ended questions so that the child can volunteer information by herself. But um, yeah, so we all have, you know, guidelines to deal with such abuse, if ever we suspect anything like that. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your um, answer to this question because we find out some teenagers are getting um, sexually transmitted diseases or they're yeah. getting sexually active. Yeah. So, what would you? What are your last words uh, for our listeners, please? One very important thing we must all take seriously would be our mental health. 
And I would say, uh, if there are women listening to me, um, I would want you to put yourself first because you have one life to live. If you are hiding an abuse, all because of what people will say, all because you are feeling like you will be ostracized or because you think the abuser is the best for you. The last word I have for you is think again. Your health is important. Your physical health is important. Your mental health is important. And it's high time you spoke up about any form of abuse or about any form of mental health issues you may be suffering right now as a result of previous abuse. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Omar, thank for you. coming on the show. Thanks. And if you've enjoyed this show, kindly subscribe, comment, leave a review. It's been Grace Topper for Raza, Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. See you soon and take care. What are your thoughts towards this piece? If you've got any questions or inquiries, you can get in touch rising above shadows of abuse at gmail.com or our social media platforms rising above shadows of abuse at TikTok rising above shadows of abuse, Twitter rising above abuse, YouTube rising above shadows of abuse. See you in the next episode and keep being positive. Take care. Rising above shadows of abuse. In short, Raza.